Well, hey friends, welcome to Evangel Church Online, a safe place for everyone to explore faith in Jesus, receive his love, and look more and more like him each day. And today we're still continuing our Gospel of John series, and we're gonna look at three words that Jesus says that changed everything. Stick around. Well, thanks friends for sticking with us. Well, this week at the time of recording, we had a preteen party here at the church. Preteen parties are always so fun. Uh, it's always a good time to hang out with our students. And the particular one that we had, uh, there was a part of it where students had to find some puzzle pieces and put together a puzzle uh, in order to like win this part of the night. And so students kind of were off, they were sent off throughout the whole church. They were looking for all of these pieces of a puzzle and they eventually brought them all back. And as they were bringing them back, they were starting to try and assemble this puzzle, but it was proving to be more difficult than they thought it was gonna be, or even than, than we thought it was gonna be. So as they were doing this, we figured, Pastor Lucas and I, that we would kind of help them out uh, and start putting these pieces together. Well, those preteen students very quickly lost interest in this puzzle. Uh, they gave up, they walked away, they started doing something else. Um, but Pastor Lucas and I were determined to finish this puzzle. We wanted to complete the picture that was there. And so all these students had gone away and here's left Pastor Lucas and I doing this puzzle together. Now, I'm not even really sure why I decided to finish this puzzle. I actually, to be quite honest with you, hate puzzles. Now, sorry to those of you who are like big puzzle aficionados. Um, I don't find it to be relaxing. I don't really find it to be um, like one of those things that I enjoy doing or that passes the time. Um, I, I'm just really bad at puzzles to be quite honest. And so um, I would never choose to do that with my free time. But here I was sitting at this table determined to finish this puzzle. So we're getting through it all. It took us almost to the end of the preteen party uh, to get this puzzle finished. And as we were laying those last couple pieces down, we realized that we were two pieces short. Now, there's nothing worse than putting all this time into doing a puzzle to have pieces of the puzzle missing. So that whole picture wasn't complete for Lucas and I to finish after all this effort that we were short some two pieces. And as a result, we could see the complete picture, but there were obviously something that was missing from it. Well, we are in our Gospel of John series, like I said earlier, and the part that we're at now is kind of like the, the last few pieces of the puzzle, where we are coming to the end of John's kind of piecing together of the life, the ministry, and the truth of Jesus' time on earth. And we're beginning to see those puzzles come together. But here's the thing about exploring and journeying even in faith. We are always looking at a puzzle that is missing some pieces. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that this is because the Spirit has inspired an incomplete scripture. I'm not saying this because God is like hiding something from us that eventually uh, he'll like when we're good enough or when we do something or when, you know, we believe in him that'll give us that peace. But because in our journey of faith, we can see the big picture. That's what scripture is all about. It's giving us the pieces of the puzzle that show God's plan for humanity. But friends, there will always be a missing piece that we have to, that we have to fill ourselves. And that missing piece is faith. 
Jesus, in his word, gives us the whole scripture. But you and I have the choice every day of finishing the puzzle by placing our faith in the gap, by placing our faith in that missing piece there. And as we journey in our gospel, in, in the gospel of John today, Jesus makes one of the most profound statements that truly does give us some of those pieces of the puzzle that maybe John is, is leading us towards as he finishes off this gospel. And so we're going to look at a phrase that has to do with completion and what it means for us today. But before we do that, let's quickly pray. Well, God, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. God, we thank you that uh, you don't hide and dangle things uh, away from us for us to try and grab, but we know that uh, you show us a picture of your heart. You show us a picture of the truth for our lives. You show us your plan for humanity uh, in your word. And so we thank you for that word. God, we thank you for the truth contained there. And as we piece these puzzles together, not by our own works, but by your Holy Spirit revealing truth to us, may our ears be open and may our eyes be uh, able to see the, the beautiful picture that you are creating in each of our lives and in your word. God, we love you and we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, let's read together in John chapter 19, verses 28 to 37. It says, After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there. So they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Since it was a preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a special day. They requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and that their bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other one who had been crucified with him. When they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs, since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified, so that you, may al you also may believe. His testimony is true, and he knows he is telling the truth. For these things happened, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Also another scripture says they will look at the one they pierced. Well, to jump you into the story here, Jesus has already been wrongly convicted. He had been sentenced by Pilate to death. He's been scourged with uh, a brutal kind of, it's called a cat of nine tails. Uh, he's been scourged not once, but twice. And he is now nailed to a cross as a means of torture and eventual death and execution. And so as we look now at the final moments of Jesus's life, I think there are a lot of nuances here that John fits into, ver into nine verses that we're looking at today. But as we read this passage, I think the central part of John's focus at Jesus' death are, for us, three words. It is finished. But for the original hearers, it was simply just one. It was tetelestai. And this is those three words that I really believe are kind of the central aspect of this particular passage that we're reading. It is finished. And the word here in the original language, teleao, means to complete. And this word I think is important for us to understand as we kind of journey through this piece of scripture today. Now, I will be honest, I'm no Greek scholar, um, but I'm thankful for those who are. And D.A. Carson is one of those people. And this is what he says about that word. He says, as an English translation, it is finished captures only part of the meaning, the part that focuses on completion. Jesus's work was done, but this is no cry of defeat. Nor is it merely an announcement of imminent death, 
though it is not less than that. The verb teleao, from which this, this form derives, denotes the carrying out of a task, and in religious context, bear the overtone of fulfilling one's religious obligations. So this gives it kind of a greater meaning to what, what this uh, phrase meant. This phrase cried out by Jesus' final moment of life on that cross, I think informs both what we've just read before and what comes after. It is not, as Carson said, a cry of defeat, but we know that it is a cry of victory. But this cry of victory is almost like a Russian doll, in that there are me many meanings within meanings here. It's not some like flat pronouncement that Jesus made just to fill the empty space, but it's a layered nuance that has incredible intention and incredible meaning for us today. And I think John gives actually some clues about what those layers are as we read in this passage. And so today I want to look at some of the completions that John outlines in this particular passage, because I think they have great meaning for each of us today, and they help us understand just how profound this moment truly was. And so the first completion we see here is the completion of scriptural fulfillment. So we're going to read again verses 28 to 30. It says, after this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there. So they fixed his sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Now, when we read this passage, we see that there is uh, this phrase, scripture might be fulfilled. But it seems to be a little bit obscure uh, in regards to what piece of scripture actually is being fulfilled. But commentators, as I've read through some of their um, arguments and debates, they all seem to agree that Psalm 69 verse 21 is the most congruent of that scripture that is fulfilled. And this is what Psalm uh, actually 69 verses 19, so we're going a little bit further back to 21 says. It says, you know the insults I endure, my shame and disgrace. You are aware of all my adversaries. Insults have broken my heart, and I am in despair. I waited for sympathy, but there was none, for comforters, but found no one. Instead, they gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Well, these are the words likely of King David. Um, and King David lived um, hundreds of years before Christ, but he was kind of sh shown and known to be uh, what's, what's called a type of the coming Christ. So he's almost like a picture of uh, what Jesus eventually would be in perfection. And so he was kind of a clue almost that we have or a piece of the puzzle to knowing who Jesus was. And so he makes this declaration. And as we read it, as we know what has just gone on, where Jesus has been wrongly wrongfully convicted, where people are shouting insults at him, where there's mocking of him, he's humiliated on this cross. It sounds like this psalm is very much what Jesus is experiencing or has just experienced in time. And so it's so interesting that he makes this kind of fulfillment of scripture that was made hundreds of years ago, and yet it's still relevant in that moment for Jesus today. And Jesus himself knew that his death on the cross was the climax of his earthly ministry. And he wants to connect, connect this with that fulfillment of that Davidic text. That piece of the puzzle has now been placed um, and found its fulfillment in Jesus. Now, the book of Psalms was written, like it was written by a completely different author. Uh, it was 
a different part of time. It's in a different uh, part of our Bible. And for us, as we look at this book uh, of the Bible, it's only a hundred, it's only a couple hundred pages away for us. It's like a short flip, but we can sometimes miss the magnitude of the fulfillment of this scripture in Jesus because we've become so accustomed to that short flip of our Bibles, having that word in our hands without remembering that this is recounting thousands of years of history and truth across the whole of the Bible. And so I find it so fascinating that 500 years ago, this picture was created that is now finding its place and fulfillment in Jesus. A commentator uh, named Peter Wallace also makes an interesting observation, not about this psalm, but still about the scripture that we read about Jesus. And it's another kind of scriptural full circle moment here. Not so much with Psalm, but with the beginning of the Gospel of John. Let's, let's read it together. It says, Jesus' ministry was launched with the supernatural creation of wine at a merry celebration in Cana. Large pots full of the very best wine, miraculously fashioned from water, served to, to the surprise wedding guests. This was the wine of life. His ministry ends with wine in a much crueler, darker setting. A jar full, a sponge full, of cheap, sour wine, forced into his parched, dry mouth by a sponge at the end of a hyssop branch. This was the wine of death. And so we see kind of this um, full circle moment where at the beginning of Jesus's earthly ministry, he changed this water into wine. It was this wine of life. It brought refreshment to the souls of the people there. It was a picture of what his blood would eventually do. And yet we see now at the end of his life, his earthly ministry, that Jesus is not drinking that wine of life, but is now drinking that cup of suffering, that wine of death. But we know that this wine of death that was, that was given to him, this method of trying to, to kill Jesus, we know that it's going to be thwarted by the redemptive plan of God so that that wine of death that we see in this picture of John is actually becomes our life. Because Jesus is the one who redeems that moment and overcomes that moment. Again, with that victorious cry of, it is finished. Now, as we read about Jesus' crucifixion, it could be easily seen that what is done is to Jesus is not just a fulfillment at all, but it's rather like just Jesus leveraging a moment. But let's not forget his words in verse 30. It says, then bowing his head, he gave, he gave up his spirit. And the way that this sentence is structured makes it kind of almost unavoidable that Jesus' death is not simply a result of uh, what he endured. It's not like the result of the win of these people who wanted to crucify him. It's not a leveraging of a moment at all. But rather we see here that Jesus willingly gave up his life in that moment because he knew that scripture was fulfilled in him and that his mission was also fulfilled that we see he chose voluntarily to give up his spirit in that time because yes, although he was fully man, he was also fully God. He was able to sustain his own life and yet he chose willingly to give that peace up so that he could fulfill the scripture that talked about our redemption. And so we see that Jesus is bringing to completion where scripture is pointing to him. That all of these pieces of the puzzle that have been kind of fit in are now all pointing to him. And yet he does it in such a way that is uh, just so in touch with the human condition. He does it bracketed and, and in the midst of suffering. Where he has been scourged twice. Where his, his skin has literally been ripped. He's bleeding. 
He has been slowly suffocating on that cross as he's been nailed to it. And he now realizes that his death is just moments away. And I think Jesus' suffering and the fulfillment of scripture kind of being together in this moment, I think reveals to us that suffering is an inevitable part of the human experience. For Jesus to even just say, I'm thirsty, it's such a human thing that as he's suffering under the brutal, hot Mediterranean sun, he experiences the same parched mouth that we would, where he needs that source of, of liquid to be able to, to quench his parched mouth, that there is suffering um, in the big scale, and there's also suffering in that moment of thirst. But friends, Jesus' suffering was not an accident. It wasn't an accident, but it was actually the fulfillment of scripture that God's people have been pining after for thousands and thousands of years. And I know that Pastor Lucas talked about suffering in our last video, um, and if you haven't watched it, I would encourage you to do so. But he talks about how our suffering is no excuse to turn inward. It's no excuse to become insular and to use it as an excuse to become selfish. And I think that that's true. And as we kind of walk through the continuation of Jesus' suffering here, we see that Jesus displays that our suffering not only has purpose, like we learned, by God's redemptive power, but also we see here, as Jesus said is finished, that our suffering does have an end. That there is an expiration date. Because without this act of Jesus dying on the cross for you and me, without him declaring it is finished, our suffering as a result of our sin and as a result of death would go on forever. In every layer of our suffering, we would be destined to endure it for eternity. The suffering of being separated from God's perfect, holy, loving presence. The suffering of the, of the result of sin in our world, by famine, by sword, by pain, like we said, by death. But Jesus, as he hangs on that cross, as he is bloody and scourged and only has a few words and breaths left, brings completion to the burden of eternal suffering that humanity should have to endure. And so it's this beautiful act of saying, it is finished, that there will be an end to our suffering. And you've probably heard our staff say many times that we in the West have a really weak theology of suffering where we do everything we can to ignore it, to avoid it, to explain it away, um, to pretend like it's not there, to believe that because we're followers of Jesus, we're going to be like, avoid suffering somehow. But the reality is it is inescapable. If it was inescapable for Jesus, our savior, our king, it's going to be inescapable for us as well. Any person who's been on this earth for a short time knows. But friends, in our theology of suffering, we must know all of those things, but we must also know and hold on to the hope that Jesus' death and his resurrection means that our suffering has an expiration date. That this is not forever. That if you are currently walking through pain and suffering and hardship, that it may feel like this is forever. But friends, Jesus exposes that as a lie because he has said it is finished, that there will be an expiration date. It may not come immediately, but there will be. Because without this reality, I think our theology of suffering will be a, would be a crushing burden. But with the knowing that it is finished, that there is an expiration date, 
with the reality of that saying of Jesus with three powerful words, the crushing burden is relieved. Now our suffering may not be, but that burden of feeling like it's going to be an impossible weight that we can never ever um, take off our shoulders is relieved. And we can say truthfully, just like the Apostle Paul did, for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. Friends, this is the message of the cross. That through Jesus' death, he has not only brought redemptive purpose to our suffering now, but also the hope that one day there will be no suffering and pain or tears. That this too shall pass. So I don't want us to rush the process of walking through and healing from pain and suffering and grief, because if we do try and rush that process, it will only leave us short. But I also want you in the midst of it to hold on to the hope that Jesus' suffering on our behalf means that there is an expiration date coming to our suffering. And not only that, but we have a Savior who, who understands so deeply and intimately the suffering that you are facing right now. And out of his great mercy and love for us, he says there is an expiration date, that this too shall pass, that it is finished. So Jesus' cry of it is finished was one of victory. The incredible hope is that we can say in the midst of our pain and suffering now that it is finished because Jesus has already won that victory for us. And we know that the end of, the suffer end of our suffering is not as we concede defeat. But as we walk in the victory of Christ, saying that very same thing on the cross. Now we see that first kind of sense of completion in this passage, but there are more pieces to the puzzle. The next completion that Jesus brought was to the law. All the way up until this point, uh, God's people had followed the law in the Old Testament. And Jesus has said over and over again that he is the fulfillment of that law. And we see that truly in this passage here as well. So throughout the crucifixion narrative in John, uh, we see that there are really strong overtones of the Passover motif. So part of it was that uh, literally Jesus's trial, death, execution was during the celebration of the Passover. But there are also pieces that I think are, are interesting pieces of that puzzle. And the Passover, if you're not, if you're not aware, it, it looks back to Exodus, which is a book in the Bible, uh, when God freed the Israelites from the oppressive uh, rule of Egypt over them. And he did so by sending a series of plagues on the Pharaoh and the Egyptian people, with the final one being the death of all the firstborn males. But God commanded the Israelites to sacrifice a lamb and with the hyssop branch to paint blood on the doorpost and the lintel of their homes. And as the angel of death passed over Egypt, those people who had obeyed were spared from their firstborn dying. And what was the result of that is they were freed from the oppression and the captivity that Egypt had had over them. And so Jews then celebrated this time as commanded by God to remind themselves of what Jesus had done. And so there's a bunch of ritual and practice that they do alongside of that. And so this is kind of the motif that we see in John's gospel. Now the law placed regulations and rules that the lamb that was um, ritually sacrificed in remembrance must be unblemished and without any broken bones. So as we read this, we're like, like, what does this have to do with Jesus on the cross? Well, one of the ways uh, to diminish the amount of time it would take for people to, who were crucified to die would be to break their legs. 
Uh, this is because they needed their legs to kind of push themselves up so that they could catch a breath. So by breaking their legs, they wouldn't be able to do that. And so as a result, they would then suffocate quite quickly. And this was called the curafragium. It was a practice done by the Romans. And the Jews requested in, in the gospel that this happen at Jesus' crucifixion. And so we see that they break the legs of the two uh, people on either side of Jesus, but they don't break his. And they don't break it because he has already died. And so we see kind of a fulfillment of this Passover lamb picture uh, there at the crucifixion. But their reason for wanting to break the legs of these people exposes a deep irony in the narrative of scripture. Let's read verses 31 to 33. So since it was a preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a special day. They requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and that their bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other one who had been crucified with him. When they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. Well, Jesus is called the sacrificial lamb. And we see that he fulfills the, the law in this moment by, by being that in all of the regulations that Exodus and Numbers had, where his legs weren't broken. And yet he was the one who was sacrificed for the sins of the people. But in Jewish tradition, it was if there was a dead body that wasn't buried before the Sabbath, it would desecrate and bring a curse upon the land. And so this is what the Jews were afraid of in this moment, because this is all happening at their Passover celebration. And so they were afraid that the tainting of the land they were on would happen in light of uh, these people not being dead at the time. And so they asked to, do, to, to perform the curafragium so that they can break their legs and that they would die in time to be buried. And so these are two very important observances for the Jews, both Passover and the Sabbath. And it's actually quite a, a surprise that this is happening all at once in the, the narrative here. And so they ask that they do that so that the land would not be desecrated in the process. But friends, can you see the irony here? Can you see the irony that is being presented here in the Jews' request? Well, Colin Cruz speaks to this irony when he says this. He says, the irony was that the Jews, rightly seeking to ensure no desecration of the land, were at the same time desecrating themselves by, pursue, by pursuing to death an innocent man, their true Messiah. Here was a true Messiah in front of them, the very person generations were hoping for, teaching about, looking for, the one that they believed would bring a, like true freedom to their oppression. And yet the Jews were so concerned about appearing on the outside to be, to be pure and clean, that they miss the very fulfillment of the law that they so desperately cling to. The Jews miss the most incredible gift that they could receive from Jesus, the fulfillment and completion of the burden of the law. Because they had become so deeply convinced that having an outwardly perfect life was what could save them, while they miss their dirt-covered, bloody, broken Savior who is forsaken by God the Father as he wore our sin and shame and who with arms stretched out offered freedom and grace. But friends, how often do we drift into that same mindset? I know I do. I know I can forget that sacrifice that Jesus made where I can easily feel like I need to have it all together 
to put on this mask, have my standard of goodness be the right, the, be the thing that proves my righteousness to God. But Jesus's death on the cross as a perfect lamb who was slain frees us from the need for pretense. And he offers us instead his perfect grace in our lives. That he is the one who is our source of holiness and righteousness, not what we can do for him. Luke 11, 39 records Jesus um, exposing the, the need for us to have pretense. He says, Now you Pharisees are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are filthy. Well, Jesus brings completion to the law, which can so easily lead us astray to believe that the thing that saves us is a sum total of what we can do, rather than our faith in the it is finished, completed work of Christ. Friends, Jesus is inviting us today to lay down our pretense, to lay down the systems and standards in our lives that are burdensome and faulty and come to his throne of grace without fear or need to perform. In our world today, I think our attention is more divided and distracted and our lives busier than ever before. Do you remember at the beginning of COVID where we said like, oh, this is a time for us to realize how much we need to rest and slow down so that when we come out of COVID, we'll still have that same practice. Well, I don't know about you, um, but that practice of slowing down did not uh, continue as things opened up with COVID. I think our lives are busier than ever before. Now, I'm sure that many of us are engaged in things that are meaningful and important and that adds value to our lives and to others around us, um, but we are still full to bursting. And yet Jesus speaks to this, I think, in this moment. Colin Cruz's comments are strained, are often strained in frenetic forms of Christian life, are witness to just how much we need to affirm again with Jesus. It is accomplished. It is finished. Strained and frenetic. What two words, hey? Strained and frenzied. I know those two words are often too relevant for my life. And yet what peace I can find and that we can find in Jesus's words, it is finished. What I'm thankful for is that even in this way, we're able to come to Jesus with to-do list still unfinished, with the outside of our cup maybe a little dirtier than we would like. And yet still for our lives, find grace and peace in Jesus, because those things that we have that, you know, we do in our lives don't uh, prove our worth. Jesus has already done so. He has already proved our worth through his love, through his grace, through his mercy in our lives. Friends, Jesus' death on the cross means that we can be transformed from within by his grace, not by our or the world's unattainable standard that just reflects on the outside. So in our busy and frenetic lives, in the pressure of society to have it all together, Jesus says to you, it is finished. It is finished. So that's another piece of the puzzle that we see. And the final completion that we see is God's plan for redemption through Jesus. We're going to read verse 34, and then we're going to jump down to verses 36 to 37. It says, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. For these things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Passover reference. Also another scripture says they will look at the one whom they have pierced. Well, there is uh, a ton of debate about verse 34 and how like the blood and water situation could be. I will encourage you to research all of the theories that people have about what this may be. 
But the truth is I'm not a doctor, don't have a medical license. Um, and the commentators that I read also aren't doctors. And so I'm not gonna pretend to know like physiologically what's going on here. If you know, if you're a doctor, if you're like, I don't know, work in cardiology, then enlighten us. Um, but what I do know here is that this was a verification that Jesus really was dead. Because I know at least, now I'm not a doctor, but I know that if you stab somebody in the side and it hurts and you're still alive, you will probably twitch or shout or do both. Um, and yet Jesus didn't. And so we see that this was a verification of the fact that he was truly dead. And I think uh, that John's reason for including this piece is what's written in verse 36, so that the scripture would be fulfilled, to show that the prophetic words given centuries ago in the Bible spoke about this Jesus. And if these prophecies are fulfilled in him, then I think this speaks to God's redemptive plan being completed on this act of the cross as well. Because verse 37 here is actually quoting Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, which says in its entirety of the verse, that I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem, and they will look at me whom they've pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one who weeps for a firstborn. Now, again, this prophecy was written about 520 BC when God's people had been captured and taken as, as captive slaves to Babylon. And God's plan of redemption was put in place well before this prophecy was given. God's plan of redemption was started at the moment that Adam and Eve sinned all that time ago in Genesis. But it, friends, it finds its full completion hundreds and thousands then of years later as the people look upon Jesus on the cross. And this prophecy was fulfilled after Jesus was dead. And I think this is an important thought because um, there was no way that Jesus could have orchestrated this. There's no way that he could have orchestrated this stabbing to a side in this happening, other than the reality that this was planned hundreds of years ago and fulfilled in this very moment. And John is saying that Jesus is the completion of God's plan for redemption, because if you read on in Zechariah, you see that although they look on the one whom they have pierced, they see that God still in see or that God sees their contrite and repentant hearts, the tears that flowed from their eyes. And he chooses in his in that moment to be merciful and gracious to them and redeem them out of slavery and back into freedom. And so that's what Zechariah is all about. And that's kind of where the flow of thought, I think, is following with John. And so John is saying, like I said, that Jesus is a completion of God's plan for redemption. And it's found in him sacrificing himself as the one who is pierced. What I find interesting is how D.A. Carson comments on this prophecy. He says, it appears that the tears have less to do with desperation and despair than with contrition and repentance for their past sins when God mercifully comes and rescues them from their enemies. Just as the Jews in Zechariah 12 wept in contrition and repentance when they saw the one whom they've pierced, how much more will the nations of the earth mourn at Jesus' coming when they see, uh, sorry, when they see the Christ whom they pierced since it was their sins that sent him to the cross. In contrition and repentance, I think this is what looking upon the cross has a potential to do for us to move us to repentance because we see the one whose side was pierced because he hung on that cross for your and for my sin to redeem us from our brokenness and bring healing to our lives. And there's nobody else who could do this. 
other than Jesus because he is perfect and he's blameless and it's something none of us could say. And so we look to both the redemption of right now through God's grace, but like Carson alludes to, we also look to the redemption of when Jesus comes again and, and brings that again, full circle moment of bringing relief to our suffering where there's no pain or tears or death. And so we see some of these pieces of the puzzle that John is sharing with us. And although we aren't truly experiencing it in the moment in history, I think the Spirit reveals a cross to each of us by His power and by His truth. But the challenge is, the question I think is, what do we do with the cross? How do we respond? Well, 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to, to us who are being saved. Friends, the beautiful thing about Jesus, he gives us a choice. He gives us a choice of how we respond to the cross. We can see it either as folly, or we can choose to see it as the power of God to save. And so today I want us to just uh, be invited into a moment to linger at the cross. As we see by the Spirit, the revelation of Jesus, the one who went through pain and suffering and humiliation, so that you and I can be free from the power of sin and death. The one who can save for you and save for me, it is finished. But friends, like I said before, it takes a leap of faith to see this not as folly, but as the power of God to those who are being saved. And I think the question that sometimes needs to be asked is how much evidence is enough? How much evidence is enough? We see Jesus fulfilling scripture from history. Even after his death, we see the eyewitness account of his side being pierced. We see the spirit revealing Jesus to us each day. But how will you look upon the cross today? Like I said, there's a piece that we hold to this puzzle and it is a piece of faith that we choose to have. And so we can choose to see that one piece missing and discount the whole picture. Or we can choose to place the puzzle piece of faith in the gap and believe that God is who he says he is. That Jesus is the revealed King and Savior and Christ. Well, in another gospel, but in the same moment of Jesus' death, there's a profound moment where a Roman centurion who before only saw Jesus as a criminal, sees the true picture of Jesus on the cross and he praises God saying, surely this was a righteous man. What will the cross inspire you today? What will it inspire you in you today? Well, I want to conclude with the reason that John wrote this gospel. The reason why Jesus came, found in verse 35. He who saw this testified so that you also may believe. His testimony is true, and he knows he is telling the truth. So that you also may believe. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but is the power of God to us who are being saved. Friends, I want to invite you to just respond to God's word today, to respond to the revelation of Jesus by the Spirit in your life. That if you feel like God is revealing Jesus to you by his Spirit, and you want to take that step, that leap of faith, and place the puzzle piece of faith in the gap there, I want to invite you to just pray with me. It's a simple prayer. I'll pray for you. But if you want to accept Jesus into your heart today, it is as simple 
as coming to him, repenting of our sins and believing that he is our savior. And so I want to invite us to linger at the cross and look on that cross and choose what it will inspire within us. And if you want to make that step, that great leap of faith, then I want to invite you into a prayer right now. God, we thank you so much that you are here. We thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die on a cross in the most humiliating way so that we could be freed from the power of sin and death in our lives. So God, if there are people here that are responding to the spirit revealing Jesus to them today, God, I pray that they would uh, choose to turn from their ways before, to look to you and believe in you as their savior. And as they do so, God, may your spirit and your power and your love for them be so clear and so obvious and so powerful in their lives as you are making them a new creation. God, may they know that although there is a camera set in between us today, that your spirit is everywhere and is with them as well. And so God, as they take that leap, May they know that they're not leaping into the void, but that you are there, that you are bringing that puzzle piece, that you are bringing the picture to them and that they can see the picture of your love for them. So God, we thank you and pray us in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, faith isn't meant, be meant, isn't meant to be done alone. And so if you did make that step today to, to place that puzzle piece of faith in the gap and you want to walk with us, we would love to do that. If you text the number 604-210-8535 to us, uh, we would love to follow up with you, celebrate this moment with you, walk with you, um, and just answer maybe any questions you may have or talk about what kind of our next steps look like. So we'd love to have that conversation with you because faith isn't meant to be done alone. And so we'd invite you to text that number. It's gonna be here on the screen. But if not, we hope you have a great day and that the cross really does stay at the forefront of your mind because it does change everything. Thanks so much, friends. Thank you, Pastor Marcus, for bringing us back to that core truth that we hold to, foundation of our faith. Well, I have one announcement for you, and that is Nights of Prayer are happening this Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, May 29th, 30th, and 31st at 7 o'clock p.m. Here at Evangel, one of our values is that we begin with amen, surrounding all we do in prayer, and we cling to that. We want to lean in to the reality that God is for us, that he's near, he's listening, and he acts on behalf of the prayers of his people. And so we want to invite you out Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday evening. Each one of those evenings looks completely different with a different prayer focus each night. We especially want to let you know that on Monday, May 30th, it is going to be an interactive prayer experience that is great if you have kids or preteens or teenagers and you want to um, kind of teach them the value of prayer in a way that is more accessible for their attention span, that's a great night to come out to. So again, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, May 29th, 30th, and 31st, 7 o'clock, right here at the church. Why don't you join us? And we're going to lean in to the value of prayer. Well, thank you so much for your generosity in so many ways. 
We cannot do any of what we do here at Evangel without you, without your financial support, without our amazing volunteer teams, and without your prayers. And so we just want to acknowledge with such gratitude the gift that you are to the kingdom of God. If you want to continue partnering with us, or if that's something new you would like to step into, we'd invite you to do so by heading on over to myevangel.church forward slash give and that will list all of the ways that you can partner with us financially. Again, thank you so much for your support. Well, friends, I hope you have a wonderful week. I hope that you are assured of the love of Jesus for you, that he would go willingly to the cross so that he could have a relationship with you. God bless.